0: welcome to the internet history podcast i'm your host brian mccullough One of the biggest names of the dot-com era was theglobe.com. It had one of the most successful and storied IPOs of its day, and it was led by two early 20-something co-founders long before that sort of thing was common. Todd Kreiselman, along with Stefan Paterno, was one of those early co-founders. And in the offices of his current company, Media Radar, Todd sat down with me to remember the founding story of one of the earliest and most innovative community sites on the web. We're exploring these community sites as a sort of survey of proto social media websites. And as you'll hear, The Globe was certainly one of the most interesting. And so, Todd Kreiselman. Todd Kreiselman, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast.
1: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
0: Um, You were, you're a Silicon Valley native. You
1: were, you were raised
0: in California.
1: I was, I grew up uh, around Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. Um, I was born there, spent a few years when I was a kid that I do not remember in San Francisco. And then the rest was done in Palo Alto. Were, Were your parents in the tech industry at all? They both were, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad worked for a company called Raychem, mm-hmm. which invented almost all the wiring sheath that goes into every plane and computer around the world. And uh, and my mom worked at a variety of companies. Uh, she was an actual programmer. I can even remember growing up she had punch cards.
0: Hmm. Would you say, I think I read that you maybe were a bit of an entrepreneurial kid. Did you have like a printing business or something when you were in high school? or
1: Well, you really searched around? <laughs> uh, I did. I don't want to so first of all, I want to really temper the expectation. you know i I did desktop publishing for small businesses. Both commercial restaurants creating menus—that was a thing that you didn't do yourself at the time. It was something you outsourced. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I had a job at a printing press called Hamilton Press on, on the top of Hamilton Street, right below of Alma, if you know Palo. Alto.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and
1: you were a Mac kid, I think, as, as everyone was in right. Palo Alto.
0: <laughs> so uh, when you when you you go to college at Cornell, uh, what what were your what were
1: you studying? What was the degree going to be? Biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I grew up in the Bay Area, and definitely there was a lot of tech, and that did influence me. I think I, a lot of my friends and I thought that the computer revolution was over,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is really funny looking back, sort of comical. But at the time, you, you know, the dinner conversations were really about how amazing this was for your parents. Mm-hmm. And so as a kid, you didn't say, wow, I want to do that again. I don't want to do what they're going to do. Or you thought they've sort of cornered it. And so there was a lot of discussion around biotech. And Genentech was just getting started. And so I was very much influenced by, by what I saw in, in technology generally, but specifically around biotech and genetics.
0: So how early in first year, second year, how, how early is it that you actually meet uh, Stefan?
1: So I met him in the first few weeks of, of, of university. Mm. Uh, he and I had some mutual friends who had introduced us, and we did not like one another at all. At all. We had an almost immediate allergic reaction to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, but over a period of the next couple of years, our social circles were similar. Mm-hmm. And so we kept seeing one another and then realized we might actually be very close friends. Maybe we had made a mistake before.
0: Mm. In, in his book, he described that he fell in love with a flight simulator that you had on your computer and he might have <laughs> he might have took advantage of you and, and <laughs>
1: i'm sure he did
0: <laughs> to, to, to play that game a lot of basically
1: i'm sure he did i don't remember which simulator now which one it was so
0: also in his book he describes that like the seminal moment for the two of you is is possibly downloading mosaic and uh first tinkering around on, on the web do you remember that at all
1: definitely and that was a big deal you know, this idea, of, it is so ingrained in our culture now, it's hard to even remember a time before it. Mm-hmm. But there was, and definitely this idea that the internet would have a visual piece to it was just a really big deal. And both he and I had been on the internet for a number of years. So we knew what the internet was, and there was something called Gopher, which was a mm-hmm. piece of software that even predates Mosaic, that was, you know, you could see people toying with this idea of creating a visual medium. It wasn't like Mosaic. It wasn't like Marc Andreessen was like the first guy who thought of this stuff. Mm -hmm. There were a whole bunch of people who thought a more visual medium would really really make a big difference on the internet.
0: And uh, would you have had a a broadband connection in in your dorm room, or are you dialing in? Do you remember any of that sort of technical stuff?
1: You know, we did have a broadband connection at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. for sure so how does this you're, you're fascinated with the web you're, you're exploring it together what I'd, what I'd be really curious to know is then how, what's, how do you evolve that into you know what there's an opportunity here for us to do something on the web
1: so there were a couple things that happened at that time that we thought at the time we talked a lot about one was we thought the fact that like on some evenings we would chat with people from around the world. And I can remember both of us thought of ourselves as social guys. We had girlfriends. We went out a lot. But here we were, sometimes on Friday and Saturday night, we'd be sitting, and this is extremely just sounds so nerdy, but basically we would just sit chatting around chatting with people. Because we were we were naturally enthralled with this concept that you could chat with people around the world. But that that was just like a completely unusual idea to us and we we did we were like so many college students you're overly self-reflective and you know you're you know we said boy if we're two average college guys who could be going out and having a good time but instead we're sitting around chatting that was a, a a sort of a social engagement a behavior that we thought was really unusual um that was the, one of the main ingredients to why we started the company. Is we thought that that was just such an unusual thing that, and if it was addictive, it was clearly addictive to us. Uh, we thought that would be the case for many other people, um, and that that turned out to be prescient and accurate. The, pe- the second piece was much more. We were just two two people at the beginning of their career. We're not even in our career phase. Right, we're just sophomores mm-hmm. in college, and we were excited about starting something, and and uh, you know. Definitely growing up in Silicon Valley, if you were, uh, have the good fortune to simply be born there, you were exposed to a lot of entrepreneurial, pe- you know, to that community of, of people starting businesses. And uh, and his family was very entrepreneurial. So this idea of starting a business seemed very natural to us. Now so We knew absolutely nothing of what we spoke at all, right? We were two mm-hmm. uh, young guys who just had some ideas in their head, bouncing around with
0: well, and with you time know... on their head. It's almost, it's almost a cultural cliche nowadays that a, a, an undergrad in college would start a business in his dorm room. Totally. But this is 1994, so it's not like there's the Mark Zuckerberg model out there for you guys. Like, literally, this is not something that people tend to do as undergrads in college in 1994.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's, I think that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as a result of that, it was not particularly well-received by our families at, at all, actually. Um, hmm. You know, I I completely hid the first year and a half of the business's existence from my father.
0: Hmm.
1: I told my mother hmm. uh, maybe six months in, but I I knew the perception was it would be, hey, you've worked really hard in high school to study to go to a good university, of which both they and me contributed to the to the investment to go to an expensive school. And then it was like, hey, you're actually working on a side project mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with biogenetics at all, mm-hmm. and it may have something to do with your day job in high school, <laughs> which was media, which wasn't called media back then. It was just like working at a printing press, right. you know, or <laughs> desktop public. Like, it didn't, it didn't have the, the cachet, perhaps, that it has in today's world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it was not a popular, it was something that we, we hid. Oh, yeah, it was, not, it was not like a positive development. Well,
0: so let's 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 get into what the what the project actually is. So you guys, um, basically inspired by these chat rooms that you're going into, you 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 guys um, code up one of your own. Isn't it essentially basically a chat chat room product that it starts with, right? It is.
1: You know, we had used. I had grown up in high school chatting on something called in the Bay Area Treks, mm-hmm. which I just want to credit them for. If there's anyone out there who knows that. Um, And that was also very social, but had no visual media at all. So basically you keyed in what you were saying, but there was absolutely no more to the environment. And so our belief was that the intersection of the internet with a visual media would suddenly mean that you could create a real genuine sense of community where people were interacting with one another. And there were many fits and starts to try to figure out how to actually create an environment um, for them we created uh, chat rooms with names like you know tequila sunrise and whiskey sour and hot tub and like, they were meant to be social and sort of fun and I'm sure they reflected also the age group we were in um, but definitely they were very visual environments where people could choose avatars or I- icons to represent themselves uh, in the same way that we have emoticons on phones we created emoticons we didn't call them emoticons mm-hmm. a, i don't know if the word existed yet but we create little graphics that people could represent their emotional state and this turned out to be overnight hugely popular mm-hmm. like we thought it would be popular but we had no idea that it would explode so quickly
0: yeah i i the numbers i have are, are only from stefan's book but like um I, I believe you guys launched April first, nineteen ninety-five. So almost eg- exactly twenty years ago, right now. Um, and within the first month, you have three thousand users, fifteen thousand by the second, thirty thousand by the third. Does and that sound like it might be? Sure. In no, the neighborhood. Okay.
1: I was trying to think if those would be. So we also got started uh, by charging people to chat. Mm-hmm. So at the time, like you couldn't do this. In, by nineteen ninety-eight, but in ninety-five, uh, or even ninety-nine, you know, in ninety-five, you could charge people to participate. Uh, and so I don't I I can't remember if that's the total number of people, but it's, it sounds about right. Those are that sounds totally about the right. We had people sending us checks to like a PO box in like mm. a New York, and we became we had to buy the biggest PO box. Like they just can't. Checks would come in huge, you know, bags, uh-huh. basically because you couldn't take credit cards over the internet.
0: And and when you launch, it is the dot com that you mm-hmm. la- It wasn't a, there wasn't any other early names or different sites like that.
1: Uh, we used another name internally, not for the public site, for maybe the first few months, mm-hmm. called Web Genesis, mm-hmm. but then within a few months we switched it over to the Globe. And
0: mm-hmm. let's talk about um, again. You know, now colleges are are more apt to um, encourage their their students to be entrepreneurial, but you guys are actually able to successfully set up on campus offices.
1: No. No oh you know what so no so the university did allow you to have the university I'm just thinking through this I haven't thought uh-huh. this particular question for a long time yeah. the university allowed you to do student projects on special projects and so before we knew the business was going to be a business mm-hmm. we researched the idea of community and visual media formats on the internet we were researching that and we were also trying to figure out who who was making uh, server software so today we take it for granted you can run a website off Square or Yahoo or wherever. But at the time, you actually had to figure out like what were the underpinnings you know, to deliver the product. So we spent, uh, I think if it was, I don't know if it was six months or a year before we in- incorporated and really got started. Once we got started, uh, we would have loved to stay on the campus, but uh, they did not allow us there Very nice about it, actually, but they they said you had to leave. And we settled in right on the edge of campus so that, like, so many college campuses, right next to it is a section of bars and restaurants, Mm -hmm. and we settled above a bar named Ruloff's, and there was a Wendy's underneath us, Mm -hmm. and there was a series of places where you could get probably food that was not particularly healthy. (laughs)
0: Let's talk about um, early employees, because I believe that you uh, paid people... Basically, in pizza and beer was the quote that I had read, um, and also there was a funny anecdote that I saw that when you you advertise for um, for more experienced people to join the company, you you're asking for basically upperclassmen. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I mean this is definitely true. Uh, both of those stories, you know, we we did pay people. It wasn't like we didn't pay minimum wage or anything, else, but it was like minimum wage or mm-hmm. really close to minimum wage, and and. There was a very real sense for us. So again, maybe this in the real world it was probably ridiculous, but for us, we thought we were on the cusp of something, and we were on the cusp of something. And like it was, it was growing. This idea that you know, three thousand people would visit it within thirty days later it was thirty thousand people. That that was amazing to us. That was more than the population of the university on its two hundred acre campus. So there was a sense of camaraderie, and it was fun. Uh, and definitely, every one of the employees was also a user of the product. So people were constantly chatting and engaging with the users, and and uh, we didn't know about focus groups back then. So we would ask people questions directly in the chat rooms all the time. How would we make the product better? What do you think of this? Um, you know, will you help? Will you join? Do you fill out surveys for us? Like we were constantly trying to figure out how to make the product better. Uh, we did not use all the. F- the terminology we would use as professionals, but we were constantly asking. Um, but that's that's definitely true. And then in terms of upperclassmen, we we were juniors when we got started, but we would we were looking for people who were PhDs and master's students mm. who were programmers, especially.
0: Well, and were you looking for people that might have maybe business experience of some kind? Because as you said, you you might not have known. <laughs>
1: so we did not. Uh, we we are. We tried, I should say, and we found very few people who we thought. Mm-hmm. First of all, this is this is tough. One year upstate New York, there's not a lot of, uh, of people there to recruit. Period. Um, and then what made it more difficult is that you were creating a business model that didn't exist at all. Right? When we would go into meetings, people people would say, "So this is the internet." And you're like, "No, no. This is a piece of the mm-hmm. internet. We're, we want to own this one, and really, we want to own it for people who are between." you know, 12 and 30, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, it was very defined and almost never did people get this people constantly for several years asked, so you're creating the internet and how does this differ from AOL and Yahoo? Like the questions were difficult. So I think we, we were resigned pretty early on that we would have to move the company. We didn't know it'd be New York, but at the first, but we, we knew we had to move the company.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about, um, fundraising because, um, I think you, you get by for a while with uh, friends and family around basically. Um, but then, uh, you actually do by about, I guess, late 95, early 96, you kind of make the rounds out in California with the VCs and, and not, you know, small name VCs. So how did, how did you get those connections to get those meetings?
1: So we had no real connections. Um, and actually I would say today, if anyone is an entrepreneur listening to this, you do not need connections at all. Just pick up the phone. In fact, the VCs definitely prefer most that you just present your idea and you, you don't have a broker between you and them. That was the same then. Uh, we called people. People were very generous with their time. Uh, there were occasional introductions made, maybe one or two, but like one or two out of 40 meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found that, that was that was open. I think we this would be no different at any age it's it's a at the beginning you don't know what you're doing you're, you don't know how to present um this was before powerpoint mm-hmm. so people had slide projector like uh mm-hmm. <laughs> you like transparent you'd have a transparency and a sharpie and you're like mm-hmm. writing it on like it was early days
0: would um, you would you be embarrassed by the business plan now if you saw it
1: we were embarrassed by the original business plan within a <laughs> within a period of just a few months, or for sure, a year was enough time to yeah. look back uh, to say it was not very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no question. Um, but we did go out to California, and you could, this was you know it was interesting. The Boston venture capital community was enormous then, mm-hmm. right? So it's much smaller now, but it was enormous then, anchored by major companies like Deck uh, in the Boston area, but. But they they were not doing a lot of internet things in the same way uh, that we saw in the Bay Area. And so we felt that we had to go to the Bay Area to have those discussions. And the only reason we did not move the company to the Bay Area was that we, we had an early sense that advertising was going to be based out of New York. And we thought that that would have been an odd setup to go back and forth constantly. But we did talk to a lot of firms out there, and certainly the team at... Uh, Greylock and Kleiner Perkins were the most uh, influential in terms of our own our own development as a business and our own professional development. They, there were certain people there who were really mentors to us.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Bob Halperin and, and David Horowitz are, are two of the people that kicked in, um, I think, for your second round of fundraising and sort of sort of gets you on the road. Uh, but you mentioned the advertising part of it, and um, let's talk about that for a second, because uh, I think you guys must have been one of the really, really early uh, clients of, of DoubleClick, right? Definitely. Yeah. And so how did how did you find them? Did they find you?
1: You know, I don't remember actually how the introduction was made now, but they were extraordinarily generous with their time. Both Kevin Ryan and Kevin O'Connor, the two founders there, were just took pity on us constantly. You know, we were really two guys who felt like we were from the sticks after we had spent four years in Ithaca, and they were, you know, they built they built that company so successfully. Both have gone on to, to future additional fame, and they are they they were just so generous with their time and advice to us in the beginning.
0: Well, and I, as listeners will know, we we we've spoken to Kevin O'Connor about those early days, and you're almost. A perfect client for them because they need the inventory to start, and you've yeah. got you guys have at this we had a, point we had a lot of right, right hundreds of thousands of yeah. users at this point, and so um, when when you put up the 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 ads, the the double click ads, almost overnight you're doing like eighty five thousand, a hundred thousand in revenue a month just from those ads.
1: Yeah, it was. I don't remember the exact numbers, mm-hmm. but I remember the feeling was like, oh my gosh, this is so much money overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, So it it was very much as if we had just plugged in. And DoubleClick played, even in those early days, they ended up playing different roles uh, as they matured their business models. So sometimes they're an ad delivery service as they are best known today. At the time, they were actually also selling the ads. That was their main business. They had a a team of sales reps. Uh, But, like, they were at, I want to say, like, 20 Madison. It was, like, right 25th and Madison. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, similar to us. They were working out of boxes and card tables, and it was it was early days, you know. Like, but they were certainly we credited them. We thought right away when we met them that they were they were twenty fifteen to twenty years ahead of us in their career, and they were so generous with their advice and feedback.
0: And it is about this time, I think it's uh, January of '97, that you guys do make the move to New York. Um, and I, I, the story that I'd read was that you literally say, oh, the site's going to be down for maintenance for six <laughs> hours, and that is literally you guys getting in a car and driving the server over here and then plugging it back in.
1: Yeah, I mean, we it, it was many months in the planning, so I don't want to make it sound like we it was uh, a last-minute hasty move or something, mm-hmm. but certainly there was there was no outside moving group. We literally got four U, big U-Haul trucks. We By this point, we were already... Had millions of people visiting the site, so this you know we we and we didn't have the capital to create a second data center, so we had to put it all on a truck and move it. And we really did just say we'll be down and we'll be back, and you know it wasn't six. I think it was longer than six hours, but it was like that. You know, it's like later this day we'll be back. And we did tell people what was up. We said you know we're we're moving from here to here, and this is there's not a a special trick about how to get around this.
0: So uh, also around this time. Uh, Michael Egan, um, who came from Alamo Rent-A-Car, mm-hmm. um, gets introduced to you guys and single-handedly puts in a, a $20 million round at some point. He does, yeah. And that's um, that's got to be really, that. that's when things take off in terms of making this the real business because you're in New York and you've got this money now, right?
1: Yeah, there's no question. You know, we had, we had already moved to New York and we were doing well. We had been plugged into DoubleClick and so suddenly we had a lot more cash flow than we had ever had. Um, and so that did give us some breathing room where we were not actually out looking for capital at all. But the president at the time of Cornell University was a guy named Hunter Rawlings. And uh, and he had had lunch with Michael, who expressed an interest in being involved in a dot-com in some way. And so the university paid to fly us back for a lunch with Michael Egan and the university president, who we, we, we know a little. We've met him over the years. Um, and he was a very good guy. Uh, but basically, we owe him for the introduction to Mike Egan. We immediately had good rapport, uh, good good chemistry, personal chemistry with him, similar alignment of vision and the way we thought technology would impact people and society. And that was really it. You know, Michael, in that luncheon, made the decision that he wanted to invest $20 million. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting. So normally, companies, you go out and you say, we need to do this, we need $20 million. Um, that was not what happened. Actually, this was a case where we had we we were doing well, we had we were not looking for capital at all, and, and basically we met this stranger who said, Boy, you guys are really on to something, and there's pattern recognition. For he was probably in his mid-50s by then, and he said, I have pattern recognition. I've been an entrepreneur, I've done this for some years. He said, Let's be partners in this. And then we spent three months doing diligence on each other. It was really funny, actually. So all we we shake on it, we do all we he says exactly what he wants to do. We then spend a few months negotiating at the terms and doing diligence on one another, and that was it.
0: I'm curious, though. Um, again, this is something that's more common that that a 23, 24 year old is is coming to raise money for a, a tech startup. Um, did you? Was there any difficulty? Was your ages, were your ages ever a, a problem in terms of credibility? Let's say.
1: I think it was constantly a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I don't think it was. I think it was very rarely thought of as a good thing, actually. Uh Um, So one, the process of raising capital—you know, everyone you're meeting with understands that process. You do not. So you are making constant. And sometimes this, this occasionally this favored us because we didn't know the diplomacy or the process exactly, and so we would just sort of stumble or sort of barrel into an environment where we probably didn't need shouldn't have been but uh, I think it mo- it was very difficult because we didn't know the process for fundraising managing people we had not a clue how to manage people right? we, had, we <laughs> you know we had uh, you know n- not worked for anyone outside of our jobs in high school uh, you had families who managed people but you weren't there when they were <laughs> managing people you saw I saw my dad over dinner I didn't see him watching managing folks so I think, I think it was tough, I think it was really tough. And I think the more we grew, there were real questions about uh, can we, can, could we continue to manage the business uh, successfully? And I think we were fortunate to find, a, there were a couple key executives we hired. Um, uh, one was a guy named Dean Daniels who went on to, to run the Gardner Group. Uh, another guy was Will Margoloff who's been a, a huge success in the internet world. Uh, these guys who were a little further ahead of us, maybe 10 years ahead of us in our careers, they were enormous positive influences on us. But no, being, you know, you, you might have the vision for the product side really well as a young person, especially if no one else has any experience about this stuff anyway, fine. But there are best, there really is definitely defined best practice for how to run a company, and we did not have that. Mm -hmm. so i i'm very open about the fact that i think we we were self-aware about it i will say one thing that fascinated us was there were lots of entrepreneurs we met who were not self-aware about this they simply thought that they were doing constantly a great job and i think we were very we were very worried about it often you know
0: Uh, describe for me the product as it exists you know let's say that the 12 to 6 months before the IPO, you guys at some point abandon the subscription, the, the, the paying to chat, and you're going strictly with advertising-based, but it's it's evolving into more of a community type thing around interest and things like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, actually, we didn't have a lot of control over the change in the business model. We loved a subscription business model, which is what I still do professionally now at MediaRain, right? It's a paid <laughs> subscription business. We understood it, it was great, but uh, in the late 90s, every other website started to offer every service for free. Uh, And anyone who lived through this time remembers this, there was just free everything. And so our business, which was really flourishing and doing very well with paid subscriptions, cratered uh, as we were approaching our IPO. And the advertising was doing wonderfully. So that was good news, right? The advertising business was uh, rapidly uh, emerging and, and successful, but we didn't, it wasn't like we sat around the table and said, boy, that subscription thing, we got to get away from it. it. It just came off a cliff and the wheels fell off and that was it.
0: Okay. It's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at bite.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery, um, you're, but the, 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 the revenue numbers are still continuing to go up. Like this, oh, is, yeah. the, the user, the user growth is compounding Absolutely. and yeah. Um, and so that it seems like everybody has a similar story about IPOs around this time. Um, in the sense that it almost, I feel like there's a threshold where it's no longer even a choice. You're going to go public either because all of your competitors are. I think GeoCities goes public several months before you guys, and do. so it's it's a you, you need the you need the money in your arsenal to compete, but also everybody's doing it, so there's just that pressure of well, what wins our IPO. Do you remember speak speak on that sort of time period? What?
1: So one, I, I don't think it was like it was inevitable. Mm-hmm. I think um, there were lots of debates happening at the time about what level of revenue you need to be at to, to go public on, in this case, NASDAQ. And there were just so many companies competing that you do see you know, a couple thousand companies go, go public during this period that were dot-coms. Um, I, I think it was something we, we certainly talked about and thought a lot more than would be publicly expected. <laughs> I think people at the time would thought it was just inevitable and this is what you do, but I think we we understood at a management team level and at a board level that one everyone thought this was these were special times, times that rational uh, sort of the rational business economics had been put, paused and this this distressed me and Steph, my business partner a lot. It did not seem to stress the the other people around the table as much as us. Um, but what I mean specifically, so you could take an unprofitable company and IPO it. it still happens today, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, it was happening every, you know, a couple times a week. Uh, you know, you, you certainly saw that bankers were having a field day. Like, even though this was our first time through all this, like you're not blind, right? You 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 could see that uh, banks were making a lot of money off companies and. Uh, that was very unusual to us that third parties that essentially help do transaction costs help help do the transaction would have such a big catch of the amount of money that you or value that you were producing uh, that continues to this day to amaze me that there's uh, that banks are paid so much to do so little work I, I don't blame the banks by the way this is a common error the, the mistake is the companies companies are paying the banks so the banks are just collecting your money they it's nothing they're doing wrong. Uh, so to me, that's an interesting structural thing that remains that way today. but it hasn't
0: been disrupted to this day, and it has yeah. not been
1: disrupted. To me, there's lots of opportunity to look for disruption there. Uh, there's so much money in that in that window. So uh, so we did go public. Uh, certainly, it was the timing you have very little control over. Uh, so you the way it works is you know you prepare to go. It's no different today. you prepare to go public. You file an s one document. And then you wait for a period when the markets are healthy that they will accept a new business into the ecosystem.
0: And that was a bit of a problem for you guys.
1: And that was a bit of a problem. So the IPO was shelved for. Now looking back, these seem like trivial period periods of time, but it was probably put on shelf for a month or two. Uh, and then you you uh, we were worried we were going to have to refile our S one to get it uh, updated. We did not need to, but it. it uh, for, for us we do not perceive the experience of going public as crazy as the period after going public
0: well I, I know you know this but for the the context for for the listeners um the the globe's iPO is pretty storied in that era and maybe you know any era um, but uh, you you list at nine dollars a share it pops to ninety seven on the day of the iPO i think it settles around sixty three but um so that was for a time the the biggest most successful IPO of all time. Um and you're what 24 at this point?
1: Around that, yeah. You,
0: so I've seen the pictures of you guys at at the Nasdaq uh do, do you have what are your memories of that day?
1: So I have a lot of memories from that time. The first is the huge delta between perception and reality and and it's enormous for those of you listening just the phrase that you use, most successful IPO ever, right, is exactly the opposite of the company's view. You don't make any money as a, as a company off of the 97. You are being paid, you are raising capital by selling equity at $9 a share. So when your bank tells you the price is now 97, you've left $88. value per share on the table Mm -hmm. that is what has happened so we were furious Mm. that they had left so much money on the table because you you had to
0: fight to even get to nine dollars we
1: had to fight to get to nine dollars and they the way this works is you're they're setting that price the night before and the morning of the transaction so it's very much a real time it's not like that's done in a room six months in advance with a paperwork that goes to the sec that is a fluid discussion until the moment an ipo is floated Uh, And that's true for our IPO and true for an IPO from last week. Uh, So we were really angry that they had so poorly estimated the demand for the shares. Um, And then we were also really furious because it left this impression, as you said, it's one of these storied IPOs, it is, but totally misunderstood, right? Yes, there are people who bought at 96 and sold at 97, and those people had amazing days in their life. Mm -hmm. But for us, we weren't personally selling shares Mm -hmm. at all. And so from our perspective, we had basically had a real mishap. Uh, And so we were obviously very thankful we went public. It was still a large infusion of cash, I think around $27 million into the business, which was very meaningful. But definitely... um, Definitely, it was a very difficult PR situation in the months after that point because it left the perception uh, that the market was out of control, mm-hmm. which it was. Um, it left the perception that somehow we were uh, fleecing investors or, or, the, or the market, which was not the case at all. We had no control over that experience and pricing. We would have loved to price at 90 If we had priced at 97 and then gone to 67, that would have been a real story, right? then we would have had upset investors and we maybe had overpriced it, but we were very critical of the, the, of the underwriter, uh, and the team of people who were, we were very frustrated.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, uh, you know, becoming the, the, the poster kids for this, this era, for this, you know, crazy run up and, and stuff like that. I, you know, when I spoke to the Razorfish guys, I asked the same sort of question and, like, be, did you sort of resent the fact that now all of a sudden you are the poster kids for, you know, look at these 24-year-olds are all of a sudden worth $100 million on paper and $9 to $97 and...
1: So generally, no. I'm, a, I, I'm a, a realist, I think. You know, there was a huge sense of we were two guys who were in college five or six years prior to this point. We had worked really hard, but so do lots of really of lots of people in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a very middle class family uh, who worked very hard. Uh, they did not make a lot of money, and so to me, I felt extraordinarily fortunate. I still feel this most days. Very few days where I think, "Boy, the world's awful." Um, you know, yes, we were very frustrated by the circumstances of the IPO, but to look at that kind of. Um, you know, the amount of notoriety and, and press that we got after the experience uh, and the amount of traffic, it, it, it blew traffic up even more by having that notoriety. So, you know, I think I left that experience, certainly there was a, certainly a new burden that you carried with you, right? You were this poster child and you didn't feel like you had asked for that in any mm-hmm. way specifically. Um, but I think mostly we understood that the experience of running the globe, it was really positive. When mm-hmm. we were... Like not a not all the people who want to run companies get to run companies, and those that do do not have the always the op the ability to make it big and successful. Like that was not lost on us. Like we were certainly we made lots and lots of mistakes, <laughs> but we were not completely naive about the situation. Well, but before I leave the, this point, I, could did age play into this
0: as well? I mean, like the I think the New York Post headline was like. Geeks make $97 million. So, again, it was uncommon in this era for 24-year-olds to be running a public company worth, you know. Still today. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, but there's more precedent for it now, you know. Um, a little bit. Did, did you feel like that that was also something that you were always running into was that, well, these, these kids don't know anything. How can they know anything?
1: No, no more than usual anyway. I mean, the age thing was always hanging over our heads. People inside the company were okay about it. The board was very supportive, actually. Um, Michael Egan had started his own company when he was in his 20s. Bob uh, Halperin started his first of two companies when he was in his 20s. So the guys on the board were all mostly entrepreneurs themselves and completely got it. You know, David Horowitz was one of the founders of MTV. Like, he he completely got it. Uh, so... There was no resent there was certainly no resentment at the board level at all I think there was press but the press is an interesting thing it's very ephemeral right mm-hmm. you know yes the day you know we all we always took the subway so like the day you were on the subway and you were on the front page of the New York Post you mm-hmm. were like, all right, this is uncomfortable mm-hmm. uh, and maybe for a few weeks after that but after that it was like you know we didn't change our routines and we still took the subway to work and flew coach and like there was this expectation that there would be this massive change in your lifestyle, and there wasn't at all. Both Steph and I stayed in the same exact apartments, um, you know, for like the next ten years after that date. So there was not a, there was not this huge change that certainly people thought was happening, but it didn't feel that way day to day.
0: So you have you you have this capital now. You're public, and, and what what you do now is you spend some of that capital to make acquisitions. Um, and you know, I think you guys go in a, in a commerce direction. So you're, you're buying commerce companies for a while and, um, can, can you speak a little to that era in terms of, Sure. I feel like all these companies, this is the era of portals. And so maybe the pressure is, all right, you need to now bulk up with this piece and that piece and that piece to become a strong portal or a strong site, a strong community.
1: So we did four acquisitions, and three were successful. The first one, which was an e-commerce company, ultimately did not work out. Um, We basically thought e-commerce was just starting out, and we thought we had this huge audience. Could we increase the per-user revenue? That was the thesis. What we quickly learned is we didn't know anything about e-commerce, and e-commerce is physical goods and all the things we now understand. But the other three acquisitions were much, I think, better strategic fits. So as portals became bigger and bigger and just simply as time went on we learned we couldn't be all things to all people and we had to be uh, and and when we launched the globe it was all things to all people essentially and we then looked around at industry verticals that we thought would would do well in the future Uh, we looked for industry verticals that we thought were cross-media format and we chose video games in particular for a few reasons Uh, so we did three acquisitions around video games video game websites so the following was happening. Basically, we thought there was so much cash coming to the marketplace, it was ridiculous. We just thought it was going to be impossible to defend against newcomers because there was too much money. We also thought there was going to be a huge bust. We didn't know when. We weren't like prognosticators. But we, we knew that there was way too much money and like every investor we knew was like, this, is, this dance is going to end soonish." Um, and so we, sh- we looked around, and we looked at, like, the healthcare vertical, which I remember studying very closely. But video games fit nicely for us. One, we thought video games, the video, and when I talk about video games, I mean hints, cheats, um, information about mm-hmm. games. Mm-hmm. What is today IGN, right, Game right. Informer, uh, GameSpot. Like, uh-huh. that's what we were doing. And we thought there'd be a whole bunch of things that would be positive there. One, we thought they were all early adopters of technology and the Internet. So the internet wasn't ubiquitous back then. So we liked the idea that we would be in a vertical and specialized in an area that was at the front of the tip of the sphere, where it was at the front of what was changing in adoption. Number two, we liked that uh, advertising and just general spend on video games was going like this. If you were an electronic arts shareholder between 1990 and now, you'd be like, retired. Um, so we liked that. And then finally was the age thing again. We thought, boy, if we have to go and be... Uh, spokespeople for our business uh, you know will anyone believe two young looking 26 year olds that we know a lot about the healthcare industry even if we've studied it very well where if we went into the video game market we had correctly guessed that we would look the part and that was why we did it and we also saw that in the video game market there were lots of magazines in the market and so we ended up buying I don't remember if it's five or six different magazines, Mm -hmm. in addition to companion websites, and really moved our business very strongly in in the late 90s into video game publishing, which is where I first start to realize the ideas for Media Radar. That's where that starts Mm -hmm. from, that the magazine industry was so inefficient, for example. Mm -hmm. But back in the time, it was a real concerted effort to get into... Higher margin, which was then magazines, and then to be uh, in a specific vertical that we could dominate in, and that that story worked well. That plan worked very well. We would have never been able to do it organically.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some numbers at you again, which sure. um, may or may not be right, but or that you may or may not remember. But I mean, you know, by the by the end of the '90s, for, for many years, you've been continually a top 30 site in the world in terms of visitors traffic. I think uh, around your height, you're approaching 20 million users. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, your revenue has continued to grow. You, you know, like just from 1997, when you had revenue of like three quarters of a million dollars, you're up to 18 and a half million by 1999. So the revenue numbers are always going up and and you're successful in that way. Um, (laughs) I have asked everyone, however... Is there a time that you can remember, not an exact date or an exact month or anything, when you can start to feel the crash coming on? When all of a sudden, you know what, our 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 advertising numbers last month were not what we thought they would be. Do, do you have any recollection of feeling something coming, a change coming?
1: Yes. But it wasn't in revenue. Uh, it was in the way people talked. So... To hear it more now again. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, we would just hear conversations with people, just general conversations that there are just so many, there were just so many ridiculous stories people would share. Like, there was, I can remember someone's talked to us about a, a company that had spent millions of dollars. They were a B2B company that was going to be publishing information around aluminum. And so they outfitted their entire office in aluminum. There were a lot of examples like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, in the story, they went out of business, from what I remember, within six months. And so someone was showing us the space or showing us photos of the space Mm -hmm. uh, because it was completely already outfitted and it was like aluminum and like copper and like all these metals. So there were a lot of those stories of excess, of real excess. And definitely I can remember my legal counsel over at Fried Frank at the southern tip of Manhattan and then sort of our part the partner they're intonating like boy this this seems like it's well over the top and now it's obviously over the top and I can remember people saying you know yeah this will this this the music will stop playing at some point mm-hmm. um, so there were some people indefinitely people and in venture capitalists uh, in the Silicon Valley area didn't say there's anything wrong with this their feedback was just, "Hey, it's been almost uh, a six or six, it was like a six year." As we headed in two thousand one, it would have been a seven year positive run, and basically, most venture capitalists, even today, will tell you between seven and ten years, tech f- falls out of orbit, hard, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, it's it's if, if you if you look at the history of venture capital and investing, it's like watching you know. Sun, uh, watching, or, or, you know, the Earth orbit the Sun. Like it, it's going to, it gets very excited. Like everyone gets super into it, and then it crashes. And then, or it's then, like the tree rings. Yeah, yeah, like, right, yeah, yeah. It's like it, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's. Uh, so I think there was pattern recognition with that. That hey, it's been such a good run for so long, and there's so much excess. But there was certainly no one who said, "Hey, it's going to be in three months." Or there was no one on our side who said it's getting harder and harder to get a deal done. We mm-hmm. didn't have that. That certainly happened after the crash. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even after the crash, it took, we thought it took longer for things to get difficult than it actually did. There was, there was such momentum even after the crash in March of 2001.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in, a, in a brief way, um, tell me the story of, of leaving the globe. I think um, you and Stefan stepped down in 2001-ish, maybe? yeah that 's right okay, and what
1: august for me yeah.
0: i I feel like there from his book, there was definitely a sense of exhaustion, <laughs> um, but also i mean uh, there was maybe moves with within the company to go in another direction
1: so he he left much sooner than I did, and he got out of a day to day management role maybe a year sooner than I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not feel that sense of exhaustion. He definitely did. And, and many people in the industry did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jesse Keller, my business partner at Media Radar, took two years off and traveled through China. Mm-hmm. I I did not have this at all. I, I literally packed up my things and the next day went to business school and I was fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I didn't feel that exhaustion, but uh, for sure things were very different by, by then, you know. Uh, and we had brought in a CEO and... There was certainly a, a level of self awareness where we said we're we're not having as much success as we want to have, and so we recruited someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the tone, you know, the tone after March everywhere in the industry was for sure difficult, mm-hmm. and after nine eleven, only became more difficult. Mm-hmm.
0: And as you mentioned, you you go to business school, you go to uh, Harvard, right? Yes. And um, so is that is that a sense of which I have had myself in my life. Um, you know, maybe I should learn how to do this business thing now that I'm doing it.? Was that...
1: <laughs> oh, for sure. I, you know I, look, I, I think those who believe that you go to business school and learn how to run a business, that's also wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I really want to credit one person, was a got you know there was the person who was the biggest mentor to me was Bob Halpern. Uh, he had gone to Harvard for business school. 50 years before me and it was really on his recommendation that I went um, I did not apply to any other school I did not know you know I, I was not going to take time off I would have just switched companies or perhaps started another company but I, I loved going to business school it did for sure round me out uh, in a lot of uh, good ways um, and, it, and that in its own way was uh, that experience too was definitely energizing
0: mm-hmm And that leads you, you do several years at Bertelsmann, where you are working in magazines and media there? Yeah. And so um, walk me through how that leads to Media Radar and and where you are today.
1: So one of the things, uh, the division that I started at at Bertelsmann was their magazine division. And this was right at the time, this is in 2003, when the internet... Is starting to really impact other media companies: television, uh, magazines, newspapers, music, obviously, music. Literally, another division of Bertelsmann was Mm -hmm. the the BMG group. Like, you know, they they ended up, you know, you know, cratering Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. in the five years that I was at Bertelsmann. So I watched very closely how disintermediation looked on the other side. Um, So, no, I just observed that sales personnel. It was really interesting that the job of selling advertising was changing right big media companies like NBC and Bertelsmann they're not going to roll over and play dead they're going to adapt and launch their own competitive products and they do but the sales teams that have to implement all that it's so it's a, it, the the massive amount of media fragmentation makes the job of doing sales in particular selling advertising much much harder and so the thesis behind Media Radar is that we could add, that we could create something like a Bloomberg terminal for people who work in the media industry. And today we have, you know, 410 employees. Uh, we service about 1,200 media companies. So the sales team is at 1,200 media companies. So it's a B2B business, much very different from mm-hmm. the globe, which is such a consumer business, always on the front line. Here, here, this is a business that we work with the same cast of companies. In fact, it's like the all media houses but we work as a B two B company, really empowering their sales reps to make more sales, mm-hmm. and we're 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 very good at it. Um, we've built a great business. It's uh, it's a B two B business, uh, but all of that started with definitely going to Bertelsmann. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bertelsmann was where I saw I, I, I saw the problems in our own company, but I had no pattern recognition. So at the Globe. We might have had all these issues with sales reps, but I didn't have any other experience or exposure to anything else, so I didn't, I didn't know what was what was a problem because I was a 24 year old versus a problem because we had structure, you know, you know, because the industry structure was changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bertelsman very much, very very much helped to understand that difference.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I I usually end because most people when I'm talking about their stories it's almost exactly 20 years ago which it is for you as well um when you look back at at the globe specifically and you look back at yourself in that time is it a, is it boy the things I didn't know or is it I'm glad I didn't know what I didn't know or what are your feelings when you look back now on on that crazy ride that that the globe was
1: <laughs> oh you know I have really positive feelings about this time I mean I you know, there was so much that was unknown about how the internet would unfold. Right? Would search engines be big? Would portals be the way to go? You know, millions, or if not billions, of dollars were spent testing. Mm-hmm. You know, think about e commerce businesses like Webvan, run by the president of McKinsey. They raised a billion dollars and it was gone within a year, mm-hmm. two years. Um, so I think looking back, I'm certainly pleased with the success that we had. Uh, it was an imperfect execution in a huge way. I've certainly, of course, I would love to have all the things I know now. I'm not sure in the end it would have changed the market. The, not knowing what was happening in the market was difficult because you didn't know uh, which you didn't know which direction was going to work. There was no one to call. You couldn't call and say, "Well, if we got a guy from Amazon, this would this would be no big deal." Right? Mm-hmm. There's no one to call. There's no expert to call for things. So I have. You know, I have a really positive experience, like a positive feeling and and sort of memory of the experience.
0: Well, um, Todd Kreiselman, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to remember all those all those great details for us.
1: You're welcome. I'm happy to help.
0: If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great Internet history where that came from. And if you're a long-time listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is Pod, and my personal Twitter is at McC.